Well, I'd invite you this morning once again to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there is a Bible for you on the back table that you are welcome to grab or simply look in your insert and the passage is found there. Last week, those of you who weren't here, those of you who may be visiting, last week we began a study of this great historical book. And we began last week with a lot of historical background, a lot of of context that I hope for you provided the backdrop, the backdrop for this drama that Nehemiah as the main character is about to enter into. I sincerely hope that I didn't bore you last week with all that history. It was quite a lot of History. I did see some droopy eyes. I won't name names, but uh, I really want us to see, I wanted us to see, and I think we needed to see the gravity of the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in, that we might really get a feel for what Nehemiah is feeling and why he's responding the way he did. You see, God throughout history is proclaiming, is telling a story of grace. And that's what the Bible is about. It's about his faithfulness in the midst of of his people's failure. It's about proclaiming his name and his fame and ultimately redeeming a people for himself, for his own possession. And so as we recalled God's dealings with his ancient people Israel, We remember that after rescuing them from the hands of their enemies as they sat in slavery in Egypt, the people of God so quickly, so easily, as we do, they forgot their deliverer. And they rebelled against him. And so in order to protect his name, in order to accomplish his purposes, God disciplined his people. He disciplined those who broke his covenant, and he did this by the hands of these incredible empires. As these empires came in and cast God's people into exile and scattered them among foreign lands, and so for many years God's people have been displaced. They have been suffering. They have, in many cases, learned. And now... As we come to Nehemiah, there are unfulfilled promises, unfulfilled promises of restoration that still need to be realized. And Nehemiah knows it, and he longs for it, and he wants to see it come to pass, and he wants to do what what is his calling to make it come to pass. He's a thousand years removed from from the geography. He's many years removed from many of the events that got them in this predicament. And yet, as we looked last week, the Lord gave Nehemiah a heart for his honor, for his people. And this burden burned within Nehemiah. And when he heard of the despair, when he heard of the discouragement in the city of Jerusalem, he himself was, was broken. Was broken. Well, today as we pick up the story, I want us to see what God now does, or what God now begins to do 
with a broken and burdened heart for his work. Nehemiah chapter 1. Our text, we looked last week at verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. And so we're going we're gonna to look primarily at verses 5 through the middle of chapter 2. But I want to start over. It's only four verses, so bear with me. I want to start over, just give ourselves a little more context. So Nehemiah chapter 1, listen as I read. This is God's word. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire, Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grave, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, 
How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week I challenged you with the question at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, asking, what does your heart break for? What would you make you break down and become so burdened as we see Nehemiah burdened here? And in looking at Nehemiah and looking at the, parallel, the parallels of, of what God was doing in Nehemiah's day versus what he's doing in our day through us, and ultimately fixing our eyes on our Savior, Jesus, I, I wanted God's Word to push us to push us towards that kind of heart that Nehemiah displays as we see the need, as we, by God's grace, are burdened ourselves. Well, today I want to to do much the same thing. I want to push you a little further. Push your heart a little further in that direction. Deepening your heart for God's work. And instructing you on how God is pleased to use us for His glory. Three great truths. Yes, we're back to points. Ah, Three great truths this week for, for us to think about, for us to meditate, to guide us as we walk through this passage. I know it's a lengthy passage, a bit overwhelming. Hopefully these, these three points will give you some feel for the framework. The first one is this. God will provide the man. God will provide the man. Here we are at the outset of the book of of Nehemiah. It's It's a wonderful story, a wonderful drama. And Nehemiah is the man. And as we will learn, as we will see throughout this book, he is a gifted individual. Gifted by God, a man who knows how to navigate situations. He knows how to deal with people. He knows how to get things done. He models so many wonderful things for us. And we're going to look this morning at at two particular things that, that Nehemiah models for us. But I start with this point this morning... Because of this. Because so many, intentionally and unintentionally, have made Nehemiah the sole focal point of this book. We've made the book of Nehemiah, in some circles, a a book that's merely about leadership principles. Or a book that's all about middle management techniques. Now don't get me wrong, again, we do learn things 
from Nehemiah. And as Paul told the Corinthian church, these Old Testament examples are given to us in part that we might know what it is that we need to do and what it is that we need not to do. But what I want to be careful, what I want to be careful to not do is to overemphasize the phrase, be like Nehemiah. There's more to the book of Nehemiah than be like Nehemiah. I never want us to lose sight of the Gospel. Of what God is doing through Nehemiah in His big plan of redeeming a people for Himself and accomplishing what He will accomplish through Jesus. And so before we really know Him all that well, as we're just starting to get to know Nehemiah, I want to paint him in a certain color. I want to paint Nehemiah in a certain color in in order that those colors may never really wear off as we work our way through the book. But we might constantly not exalt the man, but exalt the one who gave us the man and the work that he's doing through the man. Let me explain a little more what I mean. We might say that it began with Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 22.14 Named the Mount of the Lord, we read, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And you all remember the story, at least many of you do, that familiar story in the scriptures where God makes covenant with Abraham and promises that he's going to build a nation through this man, and yet no son, no heir. And finally, after years of waiting, In his old age, he gets Isaac, the fulfillment of God's promise, and yet God chooses to test Abraham's faith and tells him to take his only son and go to the mount of the Lord and offer that son to me. Slay that son. And Abraham goes and he obeys the Lord to the point where he gets the knife in his hand. And an angel stops him and says, no, God has provided a ram. There's a ram caught in the thicket. God will provide. And you see, this is just the beginning of of story after story of God providing for His people. In Exodus, God raised up Moses. And in Psalm 106.21, we read about Moses. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, He said He would destroy them. Had not Moses, His chosen one, stood in the breach before Him to turn away the wrath from destroying them? You see, God provided Some 30 years before Nehemiah, we have that wonderful story of of Esther. And what is the classic phrase out of the story of Esther? That Mordecai, her uncle, says to her, Esther, you were born for such a time as this. God provided for His people. And here is Nehemiah. The next in a long list of God's provision for His people. 
Now, granted, we don't know a whole lot about Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's circumstances from our text, but as I mentioned last week, it seems that Nehemiah is doing pretty well. He's risen through the ranks of leadership. He keeps company, constant company with the king. He enjoys the pleasure of the palace on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis. And yet, what does Nehemiah decide to do? He wants to leave it all behind. In fact, and we'll get to this in a moment, even at the risk of losing his life, he's going to leave behind the glory of the palace for the brokenness of a city's walls. Why? Because he had a heart burdened for God's promises, a heart burdened for God's honor, a heart burdened for his people. But behind that is the fact that God gave him that heart. And behind that, it is because God is providing the man. In his grace, God always provides for his people. I heard a lecture as I was studying this passage, and it was entitled, The King That Judah Never Had, speaking of Nehemiah. Now, we know Nehemiah wasn't a king, but he prays like a king. He acts like a king. He has a burden for his people like a king. And ultimately, this is God's purpose through it all. Nehemiah, in having this heart, in doing what he does, is just a glimpse He's just a glimpse of just what's to come. The king that Judah never had points to the king that we all long for. The king that Israel longed for. The one who Philippians 2 says, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death on a cross. God has provided the man. God has provided the final man. It is Jesus. And so we can and we will learn so much from Nehemiah. But when Nehemiah steps into the fray for God's people, When Nehemiah rises to become the intercessor for brokenness, we don't worship the man, Nehemiah. We worship the one to whom Nehemiah points. We worship Jesus. And so this morning, I just want to set your hearts on Jesus and rejoice again in God's provision for His people. God will provide the man. That's the first thing. The second thing, as we work into the body of our passage, is this. God's work begins on our knees. God's work begins on our knees. You know as well as I do that there's a lot of ways that Nehemiah could have responded to the news that he had heard. Even with the burdened heart that the Lord had given him, he could have Just complained. Some of us would have complained. He could have uh, organized a a petition drive or a, a protest march. But Nehemiah does something 
very different, something counterintuitive to many of our thinking. He bows his head and he aims towards heaven. Now we've talked a lot about prayer here at Ascension. We studied prayer for many weeks during the summer. So I don't feel the need to spend a whole lot of time talking about the nature of of Nehemiah's prayer. But I do want to be challenged by a few things that we can see by observing how Nehemiah prays. Recognizing that God's work begins on our knees. And so three things specifically. First, notice how biblical Nehemiah's prayer is. How biblical it is. Of course, I realize it's in the Bible, so it's biblical. But I'm talking biblical in terms of its pattern, in terms of its, its content. The prayer begins the same way the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. The same way we talked about the Psalms teaching us how to pray. Adoring God, reflecting upon God's character. How God loves to hear His children reflect on who He is and pray with the language that proclaims who He is. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. One commentator wrote on this that it's more than just rhetoric, but that this opening deliberately postpones the cry for help. It amounts immediately to heaven where the perspective will be right and reflects on the character of God, not only for its encouraging aspect of staunchness and love, but first of all for the majesty which puts man, whether friend or foe, in his place. So Nehemiah adores God and extols God for who he is. And then extols God for His faithfulness and covenant love. Faithfulness that is even seen in the devastation that He is now weeping over. That's important to see. God is faithful in the devastation. You know, we sing that hymn often in church. Great is Thy faithfulness. You know that hymn? Wonderful hymn. Where does that hymn come from? It comes from the book of Lamentations. It comes from Lamentations 3, Jeremiah's cry over the destruction of Jerusalem as he mourns the fact that the Babylonians have come in and have wiped the place. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new. Every morning. Well, then Nehemiah moves from adoration to confession. And this is, this is striking. I mean, Nehemiah makes no excuses. He passes no blame. He, he rather shares in the guilt. These are our sins. The sins of my people. He owns the covenant community that he's a part of, though, though he's very distant from. And his language throughout this prayer is is so biblical. He picks up on phrases from the book of Deuteronomy. He prays like King Solomon prayed when King Solomon dedicated the temple. If you look back to, to Deuteronomy and to that prayer of King Solomon, you'll see so many 
of this rich biblical language. All of this before he even makes a request. See, he shows us, he models for us again what it means to pray and how we ought to pray, how we ought to approach God dependently, humbly, thankfully recognizing that God's work begins on our knees. So notice how biblical the prayer is. Secondly, notice how bold the prayer is. Notice how bold Nehemiah's prayer is. Here we get to the request itself. He asked God to hear. Yes, he asked God to be attentive. But the heart of the plea is verse 11. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah needs the Lord to give him success and mercy in the sight of the king. Because he's about to go to the king. He's about to go to the king to ask the king to reverse a decision. To reverse a decree. To make a new decree that trumps an old decree. If you flip back just for a moment, those of you who have your Bibles, to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4, starting at verse 11. There was a copy sent to King Artaxerxes by the people that surrounded the city of Jerusalem, the people that still inhabited that land as God's people returned. And they sent a letter to the king, verse 11. This is a copy of the letter they sent to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls. They are repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, if its walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Oh boy, they're painting God's people in a wonderful Light. So what does King Artaxerxes do? Verse 17, the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter you have sent has been plainly read, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river. Verse 21, Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until the decree is made by me. That's where things stand with King Artaxerxes. And now Nehemiah is asking for that decision to be reversed. Now you can imagine ancient kings. You can imagine the the pride they took in their decisions. They didn't lightly overturn past decrees lest it be 
sign of weakness, sign of being wishy-washy. See, Nehemiah is asking for something bold here. He's willing to put himself out there, and he's prayerfully asking for mercy, not knowing how it's going to go. Remember Esther? She was the king's wife. She was the king's wife, and yet she feared that her uninvited presence would set him off, would mean the end of her. And here is Nehemiah. He knows. He knows that God has called him to this. And he knows that God holds the hearts of kings in his hands. And so confidence in that truth, confidence in that truth, emboldens him to ask something that involves risk. And yet something that was so reflective of God's heart. God's work begins on our knees. Well, one last thing to notice about the prayer. Notice its persistence and patience. What we have recorded for us here is just a glimpse of the, of the time, of the energy, and the tears that Nehemiah spent over the city of Jerusalem. The flow of the story, it seems to be seamless. Nehemiah hears, he weeps, he prays, he stands before the king. But that's not what happened. We know because we have these time indicators. We began the news during the month of Kislev, November, December sometime. And now, in the beginning of chapter 2, we are suddenly in early spring. In the month of Nisan. Four months later. Four months later. Later. Now for four months, Nehemiah prayed. He waited. He fasted. Did he do anything else? Well, he did. And we'll get to that in a moment. But he was building a foundation for this divine appointment. You see, that's the title of the sermon today. Divine appointment. He was looking towards and waiting for and preparing for this divine appointment. God's work begins on our knees. So often we want it to happen now. We pray for a week. Why haven't you done this, Lord? Nehemiah persists. He waits. And he models for us what it means to pray. Well, one last truth that I want us to think about this morning. Again, a truth that, mod- that Nehemiah models for us, and it's this. God calls you, God calls you to walk in faith. God calls you to walk in faith. And that, that phrase may be familiar to you, but Paul told the church at Corinth that we walk by faith and not by sight. But the question is, what does that look like? What does it look like to walk by faith and not by sight? Well, I think in this passage, though not exhaustively, Nehemiah begins to put us on that track. He begins to show us what it means to walk by faith. You see, Nehemiah, for all his praying and fasting, and I realize that I haven't even 
touch the subject of fasting. We'll talk about fasting at some point. I don't mean to minimize the fact that he prayed and fasted, but I wanted to save that discussion for another time. But amidst all his prayer and fasting, Nehemiah wasn't just doing that. He was thinking. He was planning. He was preparing, which is interesting because he didn't know what the future would hold. He didn't know if he would get this opportunity to stand before the king. He didn't know if it would end favorably. He didn't know. And yet he walked by faith. He walked by faith. When we were in California, when we lived in San Diego, um, we lived close to the wild animal park for many years, and we used to go to the wild animal park and see these animals, beautiful animals, in the African plains, just out, not in cages, really a wonderful place to go. And one of the animals out there was the African impala. The African impala. And the thing about the African impala is they can run so fast. 50 miles an hour these animals can run. They can supposedly jump 10 feet high. They can supposedly, in a gallop, jump 30 feet long. Amazing ability. But the thing, at least I've heard about African impalas, is they won't jump unless they can see where they're landing. And so zoos will often keep the impalas in just enclosures that they could easily jump out of. But these three-foot walls that they can't see the They can't see the bottom. They can't see where they're jumping. They can't see over the wall, and so they won't jump. They won't use all these gifts if they can't see where they're going. That's a great illustration of what we're like sometimes. Is that we won't jump unless we see exactly where we're going. We won't walk by faith. We demand that we see. And yet, that's not what Nehemiah does. It's not what Paul says we do. We walk by faith and not by sight. See, two things are revealed for us in the drama of the story. One is the dangerous nature of Nehemiah's request. The dangerous nature of Nehemiah's request. Not only was the answer to his request not a gimme, as he came before the king asking him to reverse a decree, But even the very asking wasn't a gimme. To come before the king. To come before the king looking sad was a dangerous thing. You don't show sadness in the king's presence. Why would you be sad if you're in the presence of the king? Maybe this is disloyalty I detect in you, Nehemiah. Artaxerxes says as he sees Nehemiah burdened. Now whether Nehemiah put that face on in his strategic way to get an audience or whether he was simply so burdened by what he had been praying about, what he had been fasting about, we don't know the answer. But we do know that he was ready. He was ready. But he was still scared. 
What does he say? I was very much afraid. And so he says, let the king live forever. As if to say, I'm not disloyal to you. My sadness has nothing to do with disloyalty. Let, let the king live forever. But this is the divine appointment. This gives, this gives Nehemiah the chance to walk out on that ledge. And Nehemiah was ready for it. And here we see the strategy, the, the strategic nature of Nehemiah's actions. Verse 3, he first brings up his father's graves. His father's graves. Now, ancestral tombs, particularly in the ancient Near East, particularly among royalty, were super respected. This would have struck a chord with the king. Your king, your graves of your ancestors. Let me hear more. And notice Nehemiah doesn't bring up Jerusalem. He doesn't say Jerusalem at all. He doesn't want to bring immediately to mind the fact that I've already decreed about Jerusalem. No, he's kind of sliding in the back door. He's ready. He's thought about this. He's prayed. He's walking by faith. Verse 4. What exactly are you asking, the king says. And Nehemiah says, okay, here we go. And he, what does he do? An arrow prayer. Shoots it up to heaven. Gathers together everything he's been praying for the past four months. Boom, here we go, Lord. Help me. But you see, there was context. There was relationship. He had spent hours with the Lord. He was ready. See, I love, I love as a father, I love the expectation of my kids when they come and ask me for something. Whitney's latest thing is apples. We have one of these, these, uh, these apple slicers. You know, you push down and it divides the apple into eight pieces, eight slices. And she comes to me and she says, Dad, can I have an apple? And she's got the apple and it's already halfway pushed down. The apple slicer is always already halfway pushed down on the apple. Because why? Because she expects that I'm going to give her her heart's desire. Now sometimes that's not a good thing. Believe me, sometimes it's not. But sometimes it's wonderful. that We just come prepared. They just come prepared, expecting that God will grant their request. See, Nehemiah had prayed in faith that this day would come. He had prepared for its arrival, and here it was. Here it was. He knew how long the task would roughly take. He knew the route that he needed to go. He knew what and who he would face on the way, and what would be helpful for them in terms of letters from the king. He even knew the name of the guy that he's going to get timber from. He had done all this work before he even asked the question. He's walking by faith. Nehemiah is walking by faith. We need to close. How does this apply to us? As I spoke about last week, God's not building walls. He's not building a city. What is He doing? He is building a church. He's creating living stones. 
He's building us on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And this, Nehemiah chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, is how God works through us. Knowing what He has promised. Rejoicing in His provision of the man. We become burdened by the need and, and we pray and we pray and we pray recognizing that God's work begins on our knees and we wait and we wait and we believe that God will answer. And so we plan to that end. We walk by faith and not by sight and we get to the task that God has called us to do. Where do you see the need? How have you prayed? How are you praying? How have you planned? Are we ready for that divine appointment? Whatever it may be, are we ready? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for... Nehemiah, for his life, for his faithfulness, which we know came from the heart that you gave him. Father, we thank you for the fact that Nehemiah is not the end of the story. That Nehemiah is just a shadow. Nehemiah is just a pointer of what was still to come. Of who is still to come. And we now sit on the other side of that centerpiece of that focal point of all of history as the Lord Jesus put on flesh and came to this earth and walked this earth and lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we deserved that those who look to Him, that those who look to Your provision for Your people in Jesus might have life. Oh Father, may the Gospel this morning once again reignite us to be people of prayer. People of Your work. People who let Your cause, Your kingdom engage our hearts. Father, that we might be those who walk by faith and not by sight, and those who are used by You in the lives of one another, in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of our co-workers, in the lives of this city, for the glory of the Gospel, for the glory of King Jesus. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.